Welcome to episode 83 of the AAEM Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. AAEM slash RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Caitlin Parks, a resident at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as an incoming AAEM slash RSA board member at large, speaks with Dr. Afra Ali, an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and co-chair of the AAEM Simulation Interest Group. Today, Drs. Parks and Ali discuss a variety of topics, including Dr. Ali's talk on agitation. Hi, my name is Caitlin Parks. I'm a PGY3 at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. I am an incoming RSA board member at large, and I'm here with Dr. Afra Ali uh, to talk about a couple of her talks at AAM 2022, as well as her role as the co-chair of the Simulation Interest Group. So Dr. Ali is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Uh, she did her EM residency at University of Mississippi Medical Center and a simulation fellowship at UMEM. Uh, she has been involved with AEM as the, um, in her speaker development program, as well as now a co-chair of the simulation interest group. And we're going to talk about, first off, your talk on agitation. So as a senior resident, I'm working a lot on efficiency and um, I'm interested kind of your take on efficiency with an agitated patient. Sometimes I feel like I spend a lot of time talking to people and maybe spinning wheels longer than is necessary, um, but I'd be interested what your take is. Hi, Caitlin. Um, thank you for having me here. Thank you for your questions. So, so if you have a patient that is mildly or moderately um, agitated, you can offer them uh, PO medications, you can, um, you know, verbally de-escalate the situation and redirect them. There are 10 different domains of verbal de-escalation that are very useful while doing so. So you mentioned PO and sublingual medications as a route to um, help uh, the agitated patient, particularly in that mild to moderate range. And um, I really like sublingual olanzapine, which we have access to in RED because I feel like you can kind of get right on top of when they have buy-in to take the medication and it starts working fairly quickly. Um, I also am happy to give people their home medications really early in their course. Um, do you have access to or have you used like oral droperidol? This is a medication that we like to give intramuscularly in my hospital, um, but I just don't know much about the use orally. I've used um, droperidol IM and IV, but not through the PO route. Um, I'm not sure that that may be a route, uh, but we do have access to IM and IV form of droperidol. It has been on back order and has a national wide shortage. Um, so I usually use the IM form for anybody that is coming with severe acute agitation. Great. So then I wanted to ask you a little bit your opinion on kind of mixing and matching different classes and uh, what your recommendations are for combinations that are efficacious and combinations that maybe are a little more outdated. The two most combinations that most people will use are the B52, like the famous B52, uh, which contains um, Benadryl, um, Haldol, and Lorazepam. 
There's a lot of literature out there that says that there's no strong um, evidence for using the diphenhydramine part or the Benadryl part. It only prolongs uh, their length of stay. It can cause oxygen desaturation, increase use of physical restraint, um, and cause hypertension. It used to be a theoretical evidence that diphenhydramine had to be administered so that you can prevent the development of extrapyramidal symptoms, but there's no strong evidence to do that. So I recommend people not to do that. Um, my favorite combination, and which is what I usually promote when I, or educate people for, is to use dropedol and midazolam. It has shown to have higher proportions of patients that are sedated at any point, um, shorter times to sedation, and then lower proportions requiring additional sedations. Awesome. Thank you so much for your helpful tips on uh, the agitated patient in the ED. Uh, next, I'm going to kind of shift gears and ask you about your pediatric rashes, um, which I think give a lot of us a little bit of, uh, you know, some somatic rashes ourselves thinking about. Um, so tell us like the diagnoses that we just can't miss. So when kids come up with rashes, right, they are very deceptive and they can range from just having very self-limiting viral exanthems to life-threatening rashes. So you can have a viral exanthem such as measles, scarlet fever, rubella, erythema infectiosum, roseola infectum, um, adenovirus, enterovirus, I would look out and be careful while examining these patients to make sure not to miss toxic shock syndrome, Steven Johnson syndrome, and Kawasaki disease. Thank you. And you're going to talk today a little bit more about Kawasaki disease. Um, fun fact, I actually had this as a kid, fully recovered and no coronary artery aneurysm as a complication. Um, but talk to us about kind of diagnosing this in the current day. I feel like at our pediatric hospital, we have a lot of viral testing available. And sometimes kids are positive for things that may or may not be actually symptomatic, like rhinoentero or EBV. And how does that factor into your diagnosis of somebody that has a fever, you know, of the predicted time frame, they have a rash consistent with Kawasaki's, et cetera? So Kawasaki disease can present as a co-infection with other similar diseases such as EBV, actually 25 to 35% can do that. So it is kind of a scary thought, right? Because you may have a positive viral panel and you may think, oh, this patient just probably has a viral exanthem and we can discharge them. Um, I think it's more concerning to be able to pick up on the atypical presentation. So anyone, any infant that has had fever for more than seven days or children who've had fever for more than five days and have had at least two or three compatible clinical criteria that we talk about for complete um, Kawasaki disease, it would be concerning. Great, thank you. So actually like 25 to 35% co-infection rate is astounding for me. I feel like we generally practice that we're not gonna diagnose someone with Kawasaki if they have a positive viral panel. And a lot of kids that have a rash and symptoms of a virus, including fever, get sent home for follow-up. Um, where do you feel like the role of the emergency physician is in catching this on the first presentation or just providing really good um, follow-up you know, return precautions and making sure that they have follow-up with a pediatrician and or like dermatologist. I think it's important to make sure you have it in your differential diagnosis, right? So if you have it in your box of differentials, you're going to think about it. So if anything particularly stands out in this 
patient and make sure you either admit them because they may have an atypical form and that will require lab work and an echo. Um, the other way to go is to make sure that they do have a follow-up with the primary doctor, right? So if in case they continue to have persistent fever, then they can be, then they should have a place to return to. Perfect. Thank you. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your role as one of the co-chairs for the simulation interest group. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and interest and how you got involved in this position? So I've always been interested in medical education. Um, a lot of the aspect that I enjoy de- doing is teaching at bedside. But in the emergency room, it's always not possible because we work in such a fast-paced um department that we do have to move the flow as well as like talk through these very high state procedures. So sometimes I think it's best to do like a, what I call putting it on the parking lot and talking about it later on. Uh, and a lot of this is great to teach in simulations, like a lot of these procedures, like high stake procedures that you don't see that often um, are great to do during simulations. That's how I initially started um, having interest in it. And then I realized this is this huge world where you can go from anywhere where you have like really, um, you know, low fidelity mannequins where you're just doing cast trainers versus like really sophisticated, high functioning mannequins where you can basically do any sort of case scenario. And I think it helps um, develop this critical care thinking in our students where you can pause in each step and like kind of debrief them to what's going on. And I think that really helps the students as well. Yeah, I've learned a lot from Sim and I kind of feel like maybe either because my role has been changing or that Sim is changing and getting much more robust. But in medical school, I felt like some of the simulations was just about kind of making believe. And um, as I progress through residency, we have very focused simulations that, you know, when I'm in the middle of intubating a GI bleed, I'm pulling the sim that I experienced with like airway decontamination that's like immediate and muscle memory. And I've seen how simulation positively has impacted patient care just for myself personally. How do you see the role of simulation changing within kind of medical education and where are we going in the future? So I think, again, it depends on your role. Um, So as you move from a student to a resident to an attending, there are different things that you can do. As a student, um, you know, they are very interested in doing procedures that are low stakes, such as putting IV lines or putting an NG tube, a Foley catheter, learning the basics of how to do CPR, right, during an ACLS or how to do the ACLS algorithm. Things like that we can do again in the simulation lab and it's done at like a very slow pace that the medical student can cope up with. Um, As we move on to our interns and residents, um, I remember during my intern year, we had a whole month where we could just do procedures on in a simulation lab. We ran a lot of bread and butter EM cases. So that gives you a good foundation while you start off. Um, And as an attending, I feel, especially if you're in the education world, it's great to go back to a couple of these procedures if you need to do or a patient case scenario that you may have not seen. I found it really useful with the um, high risk, low frequency type of procedures at this stage of my training. Um, So if people are interested in getting more involved in the simulation interest group, what kind of next steps should they take? Uh, We do have a simulation 
interest group meeting today. So if you're interested, please come on. Um, we do have a link on the main website. So if you go to AEM interest group, there is a website on how you can join and how you can give your contact information. So we can contact you so that when we have our next meeting, you can be there. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Ali. I really appreciate your time and sharing with the AEM RSA about your talks and about the simulation interest group. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.